Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Uh, So my name is Cooper. I'm the pastor of adult and family ministries here at Heartland. Our uh, senior pastor, Pastor Denny and his wife are going to be out this week and next week taking some much-deserved time away and time together. As a matter of fact, uh, we received a picture uh, from Pastor Denny and Pastor Sue this week. Uh, This is them down in Florida having a little dinner with uh, Heartland South, all of our snowbirds down there in Florida. If you look closely, you can see shorts and short sleeves. I think I even see a sunburn. Look at Pastor Denny. Look at how happy he looks. He's supposed to be coming back in a couple of weeks, but we may not see him again until the summer. When I saw this picture, I was already in the middle of preparing my sermon, and it's a good thing because I was tempted to change it and start talking about the comparisons and contrasts between people who store up their treasures in heaven versus receive their rewards here on earth. But I thought better of it, and so we're going to go in a different direction this morning. Uh, So I'm really uh, very happy to be able to preach this morning and teach. We're going to be looking at the book of Obadiah this morning, and then next week I get a chance to preach again, and we're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. And so the theme that we're going to be talking about this morning is God's perfect justice. God's perfect justice. The word justice in our culture is a huge word, right? We see it everywhere. We see this idea all over the place. In our constitution that sets up the government for the United States, it opens with these words, We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union and to establish justice, do ordain this constitution. Right When we're in school, we all learn the Pledge of Allegiance. We've said it dozens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. And that Pledge of Allegiance ends with those words that we all know with liberty and justice for all. We hear cries for justice whenever uh, wickedness triumphs and the innocent suffer. We even hear these cries for justice in our homes and on the playgrounds. Every time a child has uttered those immortal words, that's not fair. What we're really saying is that's not just. So we see cries for justice everywhere. And we also see this idea of justice over and over again in our Bibles. The word that's translated justice in the Old and New Testament appears over 500 times in the Bible. But see, there's a danger with the way that we use our words. Because the question is, what does the Bible mean when it talks about God's justice? How is God's justice similar and different from the justice in our constitution or the justice on the playground, right? Because there's a risk. The risk is that as we read the Bible and we see the words justice, we think to ourselves, oh, I know what that word means because I know how the word is used out there. But what we want to do this morning is ask, how does God use the word justice? And so what we're going to be seeing today is that God's perfect justice includes both the judgment of his enemies 
and the flourishing of his people. Right? So there's two ideas that God's perfect justice includes the judgment of his enemies and the flourishing of his people. And so this morning, we're going to spend most of our time in the book of Obadiah, that strange, strange book of Obadiah. And then at the end, we're going to look briefly at a couple of key verses in the book of Revelation on Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Uh, So please join with me as we pray. Great God of heaven, Lord, it is a true privilege to be able to gather together and to hear your word read and sung and proclaimed. Lord, we pray today that your spirit would add to the reading of the word power through preaching and that you would open our ears to understand and our minds to hear the truth that you have for us today in your word. Lord, we pray that attention today would be drawn not to a speaker, but to the Savior. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so... Let's get that over there. There we go. Okay, so this morning, we're in the book of Obadiah, and we're going to need to set the stage a little bit for us to be able to understand our passage this morning. So the book of Obadiah is actually, fun fact, the shortest book in the Old Testament. The shortest book in the Old Testament. You can drop that little piece of knowledge at your next dinner party. It's sure to get a lot of conversation going. Right? It's the shortest book by like several dozen words. And what's fascinating, so what's fun about preaching a passage or preaching on Obadiah is that by the end of the sermon, we all, we all have an idea of what's in the overall book. But here's the thing about Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament, and there's not a whole lot of information about Obadiah or really even the background to the book. We know that Obadiah was a prophet. That's it. That's all we really know. We don't know where he was from. Sometimes we're told that, where prophets are from. We don't really know what he did, what his job was. We don't know anything about his family or his heritage. We don't really even know the events behind the book of Obadiah that started it, that are the reason for the book's existence. And so here's what that means for us. That means that all of that information we don't need in order to understand the message of the book. The nice thing about Obadiah is by stripping away all of those details, we can focus on what the book is teaching us. And the message of the book of Obadiah is pretty clear. The key idea in Obadiah is that God is foretelling the destruction of this nation called Edom. That's it. God is foretelling Edom's destruction in the book of Obadiah for 21 verses. So the question is going to come and you're like, okay, well, who is Edom, right? That's not a common nation that we think of today or that we're very familiar with. So who is Edom? So this is our map of ancient Israel, right on the eastern Mediterranean. The red section is the nation of Israel, right? That's the promised land when God made a promise to Abraham that he and his descendants would uh, possess the land. They were talking about this red area. This is the extent of the promised land. And that circle in the bottom right of the map is where the nation of Edom was, the ancient nation of Edom. So Edom was one of Israel's neighbors, But it's more than that. It's more interesting than that because Edom and Israel are kind of related. 
Their, their uh, descendants are related. So Abraham, long time ago in Genesis, was given the promise. God says, hey, Abraham, from you and your descendants, there's going to be this great nation. This people are going to control this land, and there's going to be a blessing that come through you and your descendants. And then that promise went not just to Abraham, but to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons. And we may be thinking, oh, I know where this is going to go. Now that promise goes to both of Isaac's sons. But the story is kind of interesting. It doesn't go there. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. And only Jacob was included in the promise. Now that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. We're not going to get into all of that. But it's important for us to know. So Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob becomes the founder of the nation of Israel, the red area, and Esau becomes the founder of Edom. Esau, Edom, Esau, Edom. It's kind of easy to keep in our brains. So Edom and Israel are kind of related. It's kind of like the United States and Australia, right? Great Britain founded both the United States and Australia. There's some similarities that we have with Australia because we have this common heritage. And there's also some differences. They eat Vegemite, which is terrible, right? So there's some similarities and there's some differences. So Israel and Edom are, are the same kind of boat. There's some similarities and some differences. And so the important thing to note about this is that Edom was not part of God's promised people. What they could have done, they could have joined with Israel. We see some stories of this in the Old Testament with individuals where they said, we want to be a part of what God is doing in Israel. But Edom doesn't do that. Instead, the history between Edom and Israel is one of constant conflict. Even though they had this common heritage, they did not treat, Edomites did not treat Israel well. There were constant wars and constant fighting. And so what is it that Edom did in this story to cause their judgment, to bring about their judgment? When we see this in Obadiah verse 13, right? So God is speaking to Edom and he says, hey, Edom, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. So God is punishing Edom because they mocked Israel's destruction and they gloated over it. And they uh, participated in it. They seized their wealth. So when, we don't know when this happened, but at some point, potentially when Israel was destroyed, in the, uh, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586, Edom, Israel's neighbor, Israel's family, mocked their destruction and participated in it. And then we get to a shift in our text. In verse, 13, in verse 15, it starts by saying, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. This is strange, right? So far, the whole book of Obadiah, you can follow pretty easy. It's God just saying, Edom, you're going to be destroyed. Edom, you're going to be destroyed. Edom, you're going to be destroyed. And then verse 15, there's this sharp change. It says, the day of the Lord, brand new phrase in the book, and it's near, not for Edom, but for all nations, and see, this is how prophecy often works in the Old Testament. A single event is an indicator of a later, much larger event. It's kind of like an appetizer, 
right? A couple weeks ago, me and my family, we got to go to one of those Japanese steakhouses, you know, where they cook in front of you. I love those Japanese steakhouses. I love the atmosphere. I love the big flame that comes up. I love the show. I think I even love the MSG. It is, I love it. And one of my favorite parts was I was looking on the menu and it says, there's a shrimp appetizer with every entree. Oh, the very first thing he cooked were those shrimp and he gave it to each of us, right? And it was delicious. It was a taste of the fuller, later meal that was to come. And this is how prophecy often works in the Old Testament. And this is what we see in the book of Obadiah. What God is telling us is the destruction of Edom is the appetizer for the day of the Lord, which is the full meal. Okay, so the destruction of Edom is the appetizer, this foretaste of this thing called the day of the Lord. And whatever this day of the Lord is, it's going to be for all nations, not just for Edom. So then our question, of course, is, and so the rest of the book says and explains what this day of the Lord is. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is the day of the Lord? It's a common phrase in the Old Testament, but what is it? Well, the easiest way to think about the day of the Lord is that it is a day of God's perfect justice. The day of the Lord is the day of God's perfect justice. And now what is God's perfect justice? When we think of justice, we normally think of something associated with this kind of image. This is lady justice, right? We see lady justice carved in, uh, in courthouses. She's printed all over lawyers' offices. It's all over the place, right? And notice some key things about lady justice. She's blindfolded. Because justice is supposed to be blind. Right? She's holding up a scale because justice is fair. She's got a sword because justice means judgment against the wicked. Right? And this is often what we think of when we talk about justice. But biblically, the concept of God's justice is just a little bit different than lady justice. Because God's justice is the combination of two things. Yes, it includes the judgment against the wicked, but it also includes the flourishing of God's people. And in our text in Obadiah, we see both of these ideas combined together. And so let's take a look at our text in the book of Obadiah this morning. And what we'll see in Obadiah 15 through 18, the first four verses, is this first key idea of God's justice, meaning judgment against his enemies. And so when we read these prophets, their language can strike us as a little strange. We don't always know where the geography is. And so we're going to kind of walk through these first four verses together somewhat quickly, as quickly as I know how to do. And then I'm going to make a couple of comments at the end as we talk about uh, these, these first couple of verses. So the day of the Lord is near for all nations. That's how verse 15 starts. Brand new concepts. And you say, okay, so what does this mean? So then we look and we see what the rest of verse 15 says. God says, as you have done, Edom, it will be done to you. You've done injustice. So this injustice is going to return on your own head, right? Your deeds will return on your own head. 
just as you drank on my holy hill. Probably meaning, the holy hill is, is certainly Jerusalem. Probably what this means is the Edomites came in and they had a party on the temple mountain right? The Temple Mount. This was, this was a terrible sacrilege. A foreign nation was just drinking and according to having all kinds of uh, just wicked parties on Jerusalem. And then what does God say? He expands it, right? So all the nations will drink continually. This idea of the nations drinking God's judgment and wrath like wine is a common Old Testament idea, right? Wine is bitter. It's controlling. It's intoxicating, God's judgment is oftentimes likened to drinking wine. So as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations are going to drink. They will drink and drink, and they're going to be wiped out. They'll be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess his inheritance. We think, okay, we've moved away from the judgment idea, but God comes right back again and emphasizes it in even stronger terms. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame, right? Two prominent sons of, of uh, or Jacob uh, and then the, uh, Joseph, two tribes of Israel, right? Representing the land of Israel. And Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. Strong language. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. Right, so this is strong language. We get the overall idea of what's going on in these verses. So just a couple of points uh, to be made. Right, the first is that this judgment against God's enemies is severe. Right, looking back in verse 15 and 16, the nations will drink continually. They will be as if they had never been. The enemies of God, all the nations that are opposed to God's people will be as if they had never been. It says Esau will be stubble. What's left over after you burn a field? There'll be nothing left. There will be no survivors from Esau. They'll be completely destroyed. God's justice, God's judgment against his enemies is severe. But also notice this. God's judgment against his enemies is not only severe, but it's fair. It says as you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds are going to return on your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. God is telling us here, yes, God's judgment is severe, but the judgment is fair and deserved for the enemies of God. This is a harsh word, but it is a word that Obadiah makes no qualms about saying and saying strongly. Jacob and Joseph, the very people, the nation that Edom destroyed and mocked is going to rise up and be the agent of Edom's own destruction. This judgment is fair. And finally, this judgment is based on their relationship with God. This is, the key, this is a key point here. Remember how I said earlier that the promise went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, right? In the Old Testament, we hear this phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, even though Jacob and Esau were brothers. It's the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise goes through Jacob. Esau 
was not part of God's covenant people. He could have put himself under his brother and become part of those, that people, but he was not part of God's covenant promise. And so as I was reading this text, I thought to myself, why does it talk about Jacob and Joseph and Esau will be stubble? Right? Obadiah could have easily said Edom will be stubble, but instead he uses Esau's name. And it's to remind us that Esau was not part of God's covenant people. He was not one of the people of God. The point here is that Esau is being judged not for what he has done, but for the fact that he's the enemy of God. When you set yourself against God, you do wicked things and you are judged for your wickedness, for your wrong relationship with God, not just for what you've done. So the status and relationship with God is the key thing. God brings judgment against his enemies. And so what ultimately happens to Edom? Edom is destroyed. Right? Hundreds of years after this book was written, around 250 BC, the Babylonians came in and completely destroyed the nation of Edom. You cannot go to the Edomite consulate today. Right? There is no king of Edom. Edom has been completely destroyed. It's just like that appetizer, right? When, when I went to the Japanese steakhouse and I read the menu, the menu is like the book of Obadiah. The menu tells you what's coming. You're going to get an appetizer and there's going to be a main meal. The appetizer is the destruction of Edom. That appetizer has already been eaten. But what we're waiting for now is the full meal where God's judgment against all of his enemies comes true. And we'll save some of that for the end when we look at Revelation. So what do we do with this point? Why does the Bible tell us about God's judgment against his enemies? How are we, the people of God, supposed to respond and live and act in light of God's judgment against his enemies? The first point is that we should praise God who is perfect in his judgment. We all long for justice. When we see wickedness and oppression and innocence that are suffering, something hurts inside of us, right? When we see on the news of kids suffering and wickedness being done in the name of power and money and whatever else, there's something inside of us that hurts. And God will one day bring perfect justice. That is something worth praising God about. Because his shoulders can bear this awesome responsibility in a way that ours can't. Right? If it were up to us, we would not judge perfectly. Right? I would be zapping people all over the place. But God is perfect in his judgment and worthy of our praise. Second, we should trust in a God who shows himself trustworthy. Trust in a God who shows himself trustworthy. In this passage, God tells us, listen, one day I'm going to destroy Edom, and that will let you know that one day I will destroy all of God's enemies. Edom has been destroyed, so we can trust in the coming promises of God that have not yet been fulfilled. In our own lives, you can think back to ways that God has been faithful to you 
And you can say, ah, I know that God will continue to be faithful. In the Old Testament, they recount over and over again their exodus from Egypt. They remind themselves of it every year and every generation and say, remember the God who saved us from the hand of Pharaoh. Why? Because God has shown himself trustworthy in the past so we can have confidence in the present that he will fulfill his promises in the future. And then third, we should have compassion for people who bring on themselves destruction. This is not an easy text to read and to study and to think about. And we do a great injustice to ourselves and our hearts and our consciences if we forget that these are real people, that the enemies of God are real image bearers of the sun. The Edomites had families. They enjoyed playing and wrestling with their kids. And so what this should do for us is drive us to compassion for those people who are bringing on themselves their own destruction. We shouldn't just dismiss it easily out of hand, but we should say they're bringing on themselves severe, harsh, fair judgment. And it should arouse compassion in us. But our text does not end here, right? God's justice includes judgment against his enemies, but it also includes the flourishing of his people. So we see this in our final few verses of Obadiah. And so we're going to walk through these verses again as well, especially because of these names are a little bit tricky. If you don't have an atlas out, you don't know where all these places are, it can get a little tricky. So we'll kind of walk through it together. People from the Negev, that's just Israel. Think Northern Israel. So Israelites are going to occupy the mountains of Esau. So Israelites, so Edom came in and mocked and helped destroy Israel, Israel will one day come and occupy the mountains of Esau in Edom. People from the foothills, Israel, will possess the land of the Philistines, that part of that red area. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. God's saying, one day, you're going to get everything that was promised to you. This company of Israelites, uh, exiles who are in Canaan, will possess the land as far as Zarephath, which is north of the red area. That's going to become important. So we have Israel being promised the red area, Edom, and the area to the north. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad and Spain will possess the towns of the Negev. So exiles are coming home. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. So what we see, a couple of points here, is that God's people flourish when God keeps his promises. God, God's people flourish when God keeps his promises. God promised the people of Israel and said, listen, Abraham, one day you and your descendants are going to possess this whole area of Israel. And Obadiah is saying, one day, still in the future, that promise will be fulfilled. You're flourishing. It's still going to happen. The fullness of that promise was never realized but one day it will be realized. God's people flourish when God keeps his promises. And the second part is really fun. God's people flourish when God exceeds his promises. God's people flourish 
when God exceeds his promises. He promised them the land of Israel. But in Obadiah here, he says, no, no, no. Actually, you're going to possess the land of Edom as well. The land that had never even been part of the original promised land. Not only the land Edom, but Sepharad, north of Israel. I'm going to explode and expand the expectations that you have for what flourishing means. That's, that's That's a cool promise from Obadiah. And then finally, the point here is that we, we're still waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. Israel's never possessed the fullness of its land. It's never possessed the land of Edom and north to Sepharad. We're still waiting for the fullness of this meal to be realized. But we can have confidence that one day it will be. So just like with God's judgment, this too shows us how God works, how his justice works works. Yes, it includes judgment against his enemies, but the flourishing of his people. And so what then do we do with this idea? This was a helpful slide if I had remembered that I had had this up here, right? So they're going to possess not just the red area, but Edom to the southeast and north to Sepharad. So we need to expect the right kind of flourishing as God's people. God's people will flourish. This is a truth that is taught over and over again in scripture. But what happens? Sometimes what words mean out there affect what we think the text is saying in here. God's people will flourish, but what does the Bible mean when it talks about God's people flourishing? It does not mean that we are guaranteed a large house with extra cars and a large bank account because God says that's not what it means to flourish. What flourishing really means is to have a treasure worth far greater than rubies and diamonds, the pearl of great price, right? Flourishing, we should expect the right kind of flourishing that we can know God in Christ, the greatest treasure, So God's justice includes the flourishing of his people. So we should expect flourishing of the right kind. And second, we should respond in gratitude to a God who is not fair with us. This is a really neat point in Obadiah. God is fair in his judgment, but unfair in his grace. God is fair in his judgments, but unfair in his grace. He doesn't just keep his promises. He explodes them. That's unfair. God is bound to keep his own promises. He says, I'm going to even exceed those mighty expectations that I've laid for myself. We should respond in gratitude to this God who is so good and gracious to us. And so for the last few minutes, we're going to look at the book of Revelation, chapter 20. And the beginning of verses 21 and 21. So in chapter 20, he's, we see the same themes from Obadiah repeated in new and wonderful imagery. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. So John, at the end of his vision, sees Jesus on a throne and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And then judgment happens. God's justice includes the judgment of his enemies. I saw the dead, 
great and small, standing before the throne, and these books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, it says in verse 14. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Just like in Obadiah, God's justice is severe. But God's justice is also fair, for this is exactly what is deserved for those who reject Jesus. And God's justice is not based ultimately on what we've done, but on how we relate to God. People who act wickedly are act wickedly because they're not rightly related to God. That's the problem. God's enemies are not just those who do wickedness. They're people who are not united with God by faith in Christ. So yes, let us praise a God who brings forth perfect judgment and be compassionate with those who are not rightly related to God. But also, let us be grateful to God who saves us through his son so that this judgment is not our destiny. Because our sin and our evil, the enemies of God, they've already been judged on Calvary over 2,000 years ago. There is no condemnation for those who trust in Christ. And then finally, let's look at Revelation 21, the opening verses of the next chapter. We see these two images, God's justice, meaning judgment and flourishing. Some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. He says, guys, I've got this vision of this wonderful, wonderful promise. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And I heard a voice saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. God will be with his people. Verse 4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And verse 5 says, these words are trustworthy and true. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. This is life lived fully before God as it was always intended. This is the promise that's held out for us, for those who believe in Jesus. So to those of us who are here today, I say, hold on. Hold on. This image is set before us as our prize for finishing the race. There will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. For those who are struggling in what it means to do right, I say, with Love, hold on. That's why we gather each week so that we can continually put before each other this beautiful promise and we can say, don't grow weary in doing well. Hold on. God's perfect flourishing is coming. We've received a taste, but the full meal is on the way. So hold on. And second, I say start now. In Christ, God is making all things new. And this has already started. Christ came to bring life 
and right relationships to healed families. God one day is going to do away with mourning and crying and pain. And when we are agents of God, by bringing joy and life and peace and shalom to people, we are doing the very work that God is doing and will one day complete. It's kind of like a child who has a whole plate of peas, right? And they're walking through the kitchen. They drop the peas all over the floor. And you tell the child, well, get the trash can. Let's go. Let's pick it up. So they're picking up the peas one at a time. And they're doing the work, right? And then the parent comes with a broom and in one sweep finishes the entire job. We're actually participating in what it is that God will one day finish. It's not because God needs us. The parent doesn't need the child to pick up the peas. It's for the child's own benefit and joy to be able to participate in the work of the parent. So let's get started. Start now being agents of God's flourishing for his people and for the world. So let's go forth proclaiming and rejoicing in God's perfect justice. For it is what enables you and I, who were once enemies of God, to be brought close to him. God's justice is what gives us hope that even though this world is broken, and even though it's not as it should be, one day God will make all things new. Indeed, he's already started. And like our verses in Revelation this morning, we can write these words down, for they are trustworthy and true.